welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. Today is June 10th, 2020, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Today, we have an awesome opportunity as we present a panel on racial injustice. We put this panel together ultimately as a CEU for our foster families, as well as some of our adopted families or pre-adopted families, for them to be able to hear and talk about and think about how to process the racial injustice we see in this world with their children, but thought we would also present it as well to you as a Defender podcast. I'm so excited for you get to hear this honest, raw, and real discussion. This discussion is between Dr. Thomas Beavers, who is the pastor of New Rising Star in Birmingham, Alabama. He is in the inner city of Birmingham, and he talks about processing the events that we have seen in our nation over the last month uh, as an African-American man. We also have Shari Black, who is uh, works for Lifeline in our Topeka, Kansas office as our casework supervisor, as well as Claire Davis, who is our domestic casework supervisor and also an adopted mama of two African-American children. We also have Chris Johnson, who is our director of National Church Partnerships, and he and his daughter Camille are joining as they talk about being a family that has fostered over 40 children as well as a multicultural family. I know that you are going to be challenged. I know that you're going to be convicted, and I know that this is going to be a productive podcast to help you know how to process the events of racial injustice and ultimately be able to talk to your children about that. But before we hear this podcast, I want to remind you that Father's Day is just a around the corner. And we have the new Defend the Fatherless t-shirts. It's a great idea for Father's Day. It's a a comfortable t-shirt that refers to Isaiah 117, to learn to do what is good, to pursue justice, to correct the oppressor, and to defend the rights of the fatherless and to plead the widow's cause. The shirts come in charcoal or military green, and all of the proceeds go to support the ministry of Lifeline to the vulnerable, the vulnerable child, the vulnerable family, and the vulnerable woman. So visit Lifeline's at lifelinechild.org backslash store. Again, that's lifelinechild.org backslash store to get a t-shirt for the dad in your life. to be praised above you. There is none other. God, we thank you for the opportunity to have this dialogue, to have this conversation. God, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would give us clarity of thought, boldness of speech, uh, to be able to say what you would have for us to say. God, I pray that we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Uh, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would just open our ears to hear you, open our eyes to see you, open our hearts to receive you, open our minds and grant us understanding. Please do not allow us to leave this conversation the same way that we've come. Let us leave forever change. We will be forever careful and grateful to give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise in the mighty and matchless name of your darling son, Jesus the Christ, who's able to do absolutely anything but fail. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, and amen. 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 
Well, we're grateful to have this panel that we're hosting on how to talk to your kids about racial injustice. And I am privileged to be joined by some great panelists who are going to offer some great uh, insight into this topic where hopefully we're all willing to learn with open hearts uh, so that ultimately, more importantly than anything, we can honor the name of Christ Jesus in the way that we talk to our kids about racial injustice and uh, the things and the atrocities, unfortunately, that we see on a daily basis in our world. So we are joined by Dr. Thomas Beavers, and he is the fourth pastor of New Rising Char Star Church in Eastlake uh, of Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, he and his wife, Candace have uh, eight children and three grandchildren. Uh, Thomas, we are also just grateful. He serves on our pastoral advisory board here at Lifeline Children's Services and with great insight and clarity. We're also joined by a dear friend, Shari Black, and Shari has been with Lifeline since 2019. She serves in Topeka, Kansas as our casework supervisor. Uh, Shari and Byron have adopted three times from foster care, and Shari herself is adopted. Uh, Shari has been such an instrumental part. She's someone that I have personally watched from afar for many, many years and dreamed of a day that she could serve on our team and that we could serve together. And so I'm living a dream by being able to have her sharpen me on a daily basis uh, and serve alongside with her. We also have Claire Davis, uh, who has been at Lifeline uh, since 2008, I believe. And Claire serves as our domestic casework supervisor, uh, overseeing our domestic program and helping uh, make sure that our domestic program runs efficiently and smoothly. And then we are joined by Chris Johnson, who is our national director of church partnerships with Lifeline. Uh, Chris currently lives in Orlando, Florida. And he and his wife have built their family through adoption, uh, and they've also fostered uh, over 40 children in the foster care system. He served with the state of Kentucky uh, as, a, as, a, as a quipper for churches in the state of Kentucky. And he is joined by his biological daughter, Amelia, uh, who is a 16-year-old that will be a senior uh, at, in uh, high school starting next year. Well, friends, I'm grateful that you're here. I know that we have such an important topic. And uh, Dr. Beavers, I, I want to start with you. I, I know that right now at this time, there's a lot talking about racial injustice because we saw uh, the, the merciless murder of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis. We saw the merciless murder of Ahmaud Aubrey on the streets of South Georgia. But the truth of the matter, Pastor, is this is not new. This isn't as old as history. Uh, can you talk to us about how you process what we see today and really what we've been living without, unfortunately, for your lifetime? How do you process these events? And how would you encourage others to understand how, as an African-American man, you process the things that are going on? I'm very disheartened. Um, I'm very upset, I'm very angry. Uh, it is a righteous indignation. Uh, the Bible never says don't be angry. The Bible teaches us to be angry and to sin not. <laughs> and so when you see things happening time after time after time, uh, obviously we do have a problem. The fact that we're still having this conversation and it's a 400-year-old conversation is a problem. To keep having a conversation and not being heard is a tremendous problem. And so um, one of the ways I've been trying to work through it is to try to really help people understand 
specifically uh, the message that you heard this past Sunday that I had an opportunity to speak was entitled Lift Every Voice. Mm. Uh, oftentimes when we see injustices in society, it is always the voice of the oppressed that is lifted, the voice of the marginalized, the voice of the black person that is being lifted that says this is absolutely wrong. When a white police officer kills an unarmed black man or an unarmed black woman, uh, it is the voice of the minority that is lifted and nothing is happening. When you think about Rodney King, uh, when you think about Mike Brown, when you think about Philando Castile, when you think about Freddie Gray, and the list goes on and on and on. We've been lifting our voices for years and nothing has happened. Uh, for the first time in my lifetime, it seems in masses that now it is not just the black voice that is being lifted. Uh, but now we see white voices being lifted. We see voices in America being lifted. We see voices in Europe being lifted. And I've always stood on the premise that the Pledge of Allegiance will never become a reality without the Black Negro National Anthem lift every voice until every voice is lifted. You'll never be able to see liberty and justice for all. And so that was pretty much my message. Now, in that short period of time, I did not have the time to tell people what to say when they do lift their voices. And here's what I want to get at. I think it's very, very important for both black people and white people to be able to explain the term and to understand the term black lives matter. Uh, when somebody says black lives matter and then a white person comes and say all lives matter, uh, I think they need to understand exactly what they are saying. Um, if you go to the doctor and you say, doctor, my heart is hurting. Uh, if you say, doctor, my heart is hurting, I'm having shortness of breath. And he says, well, the rest of your body is fine. So just go home and you'll be okay. And then you go home and you end up having a heart attack because you did not zero in on that one organ of your body. Mm -hmm. It ends up killing your entire body because you did not zero in on the problem. We know that all lives matter. As a black man, I know that all lives matter. I know that in the beginning when God made man, he created man, male and female in his image after his likeness. We all know this. We know that we're fearfully and wonderfully mm -hmm. made according to Psalm 139 verse number 14. However, there is only one race. That race is the human race. And within the human race, there is diversity. There's black people in the human race. There's white people in the human race, Latino people in the human race, Australian people, European people, Haitian people, Cuban people in the human race. It's diverse. However, uh, we are continuing to see um, people of color and black people specifically be gunned down at the hands of white police officers. So when that one part of the human race has a problem, then guess what? Black lives matter. Mm. And all lives don't matter if black lives don't matter mm. Because, mm. because black lives are a part of all lives. Mm. And so I think black people need to be able to clearly um, articulate that to white people. I think white people need to be able to clearly articulate that to other people. When we lift our voice whether we're lifting our voice on a national platform, public platform, or just around the table having dinner. These are the things that we need to be saying, saying when we lift our voice. Mm -hmm.
Amen. Shari, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective as well. Um, as an African-American woman, and you are in Topeka, Kansas, where the famous Brown versus Topeka Board of Education case uh, came from. You've lived in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, you've, you've, uh, you, you've been through a lot of these events through your lifetime, and some of them you've witnessed firsthand. How are you processing these events? I heard someone say the other day that there's um, two outcomes of this or impacts of one, anger, or two, despair. Mm -hmm. And frankly, to be very honest, I've been struggling with despair. Mm -hmm. Um, It is, I've lived on this earth at least a minimum of six decades. (laughs) (laughs) And um, this is the day that my parents prepared me for. Um, I grew up during the riots of the 60s. I was in Cleveland, Ohio when, um, you know, when that whole year after Martin Luther King was assassinated um, and the riots that occurred afterwards and grew up with that and remember trying to make sense out of that then. Um, But, you know, we all have worked so hard all through these years to make a difference. To, to change things. And, um, you know, and for a minute, we could almost believe that we had, that Martin Luther King had made a difference and that we were a better people. We were a better nation. But the events of this past week or two have shown that I'm not sure about the progress. Um, I think it went underground and um, we could pretend that everything was okay and you know yeah we're, we're all right you know but you know it it really hasn't it, you know and so it's kind of like in the wizard of oz i'm in i am in kansas when they take the the curtain back and they see the wizard they see the reality and i think that we're seeing what always is has been um and it's good that it's not hidden anymore Uh, so that we can deal with it and we can all deal with it together. Um, Not saying that what Dr. King did wasn't effective. I think that because of his work, we do have, as uh, Dr. Beaver said, that we do have white voices with ours now speaking out and more being boldly speaking out. It's not just a few. There's always been a few, but I think that there's more, and I've been heartened by that outpouring. Um, But I've really struggled with deep sadness um, and um, fear for, and you know, I know as a Christian, you know, all the do not fears in the Bible. Um, but it's it's been it's been a hard week. Can I add something to that? Yeah, please, please, Doctor Beaver. Sherry, uh, you said something. Um, you said speaking out, and I think that's very, very important. I have received so many telephone calls from white businessmen, white clergymen, and they've asked me to pray. And they wanna stand together and they wanna pray, and I'm all for prayer. However, when we pray, we speak up to God. But when we talk to people, we speak out to the world. Mm -hmm. For years, we've been speaking up to God. But there's an extreme difference between speaking up and speaking out. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Speaking up to God is safe. <laughs> Speaking out to the world saying that this is wrong is going to cost. And what we need people who are not black to do is to not just speak up to God. We need you to start speaking out to the world. You cannot be afraid to say to people who look like you, who do not think like you, just because this is a controversial issue. You cannot be afraid to speak out and call a spade a spade. You cannot be afraid to speak out and say this is wrong. You cannot be afraid to speak out and say black lives do matter. You can't. Mm-hmm. Brother, I, I just firsthand during this COVID-19 pandemic that we've been going through, I was asked to write an article on abortion clinics being closed. I got so much praise from that article. Uh, people that that said, "Man, thank you so much for writing this article." A uh, couple weeks later, I was not asked to do it, but I felt led to write an article about the overwhelming number of African Americans who are being infected by COVID nineteen, and how systemic racism had affected the health and the access to 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 medical care and had decimated communities. I received so many calls saying, why did you have to go overboard with this article? Hmm. It's proof that Hmm. when we speak out, even as white men and white women, we've got to be ready to say we're taking on the hurt and the pain of our brothers and sisters. And we've got to have thick skin to say, I'm going to speak out for justice no matter what the cost is. And I'm afraid for so far too long, white brothers and sisters have been scared and it's led them to apathy. Um, and the apathetic nature of what they're doing. And so I I just want to say as a white man, like we have to speak out because when we fail to speak out, then, then we are not doing anything to help the situation. And we have to know that it's not a popular thing to say, unfortunately, because you start to realize how real racism really is. And unfortunately, Shari's feeling of, of just, believing it went underground, I'm afraid is so true because you start to see that come out. And it, and it may not be as aggressive as it was many years ago, but it's subtle and it's real and uh, it's powerful. Uh, Claire, I, I know you've got two little boys at home, one that you brought home from Uganda and one that you brought home from DRC Congo. And so when you see issues like this and things, unfortunately, just calling a spade a spade, too many times uh, white brothers and sisters look at things like that and they may mourn or grieve for a day and then unfortunately they, they move on. This is not something that we need to be moving on and it's something, certainly something your family has to address on a day-by-day basis. So how have you and Joel been processing these events and how have you processed them with Isaiah and, Benji, and, uh, and your children as well? Yes. Um, Nico. Nico. Yeah, I knew you had it in there. Um, yeah, you know, um, it. I would say starting with conversations would be um, some of the very first steps in um, in our family. And, you know, we clearly, Herbie, I, I don't always know if I'm doing the right thing. We, um, we want to educate ourselves. We want to talk to um, our brothers and sisters in the black community and, and hear for, from them and, and pray for them. And um, I love Pastor Beavers giving such practical advice of speak up and um, that, and that's, that's what um, 
that's what we want to do in our community. We want to do it in our family. And um, to speak specifically to the question about talking with my boys, um, yeah, it's been something that um, that we've shared with them. Um, we've all we've always had conversations about um, just the ugly, ugly history of our country. And um, of course, you know, we like to think like Shari was saying, we like to, to remember the progress and we like to remember the good things that have happened. But um, when we are here in the midst of grieving the loss of George Floyd, um, it, like Shari was saying, we can't um, celebrate progress um, in a time like this. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, we talk about it, we share with them, we, um, we engaged in a really new experience for my family this week, Herbie, we um, attended a peaceful rally in our community. And um, was it was, um, you know, it, it was started with lots more, lots of talking, lots of questions from um, my seven, eight and, and 11 year old, some questions that were very applicable and deep for their ages, but some that, you know, I just don't know where exactly where they came from. But, um, you know, we, talking to them about it, trying to, to um, meet them where they are um, with their ages and, and give them age appropriate information. But also if I don't equip them with reality and with the truth, um, as scary as it is to kind of pull that, that innocence out from under them. Um, if I don't share with them, I see that they are in danger. And, um, and that if we don't talk about it as a family and talk about how we want change, um, then, then I'm not serving them well. I'm not serving their generation well, um, by letting them think that everything is okay and that we made all this progress and that, um, you know, this isn't a, a time to, to be defensive. Like pastor Beavers was saying, saying all lives matter, but this is a time um, to say Black Lives Matter, and and this is um, this injustice that um, that's happened in the nation. Um, this is something that we want to talk about, and we want to say that this is wrong and this is not okay. And um, just I, I'm I'm learning too. I don't always know the right thing to do, but um, I do know um, you know that we have we have friends um, in the Black community that can can tell us and and um that's where i'm looking a lot of times um for for my guidance my guidance and wisdom and um and they that's that's really um i feel like kind of the place that we've started um is through those types of conversations chris you've got a a slew of children uh at your home from diverse backgrounds uh your your dinner table is uh is very diverse so talk talk to us about how each of your family members maybe not one by one but but how has how have everyone dealt with what's going on in our nation you know i so appreciate some of the things that have been said said already and, and just so um i think pertinent and right and appropriate for the time some of what claire was saying i think is, is true too i think that part of it is a, it's a learning process for all of us um i think for for our family um, what really made the difference, and I think would make the difference in a lot of people's family, is it becomes personal, right? Mm -hmm. It's one thing when it's, you know, when you say, I would never mistreat, you know, treat a black person different from, from my own family, or I would never treat um, some, a Latino person different from how I would treat a Caucasian person. Um, it's, it's one thing to say that, but if you've never really done life together with someone of a different race, what what good are those words and and do they have any real meaning behind them and do they have any real um you know opportunity to, to create change and so i think for us when we when god called us i grew up a conservative but a southern family 
um, grew up hearing slurs used, not in my per- my own family, but in my community, my neighborhood. Um, you know, grew up in the deep south, out south of Atlanta, um, where a lot of historical racism has been prevalent. Um, and, and still would have never called myself or considered myself to be racist or family racist. But I think when, when God called us to enter into foster care and step into brokenness of our community and realizing that there were communities of people in, in living right down the road from us whose lives were broken and oftentimes it was for no reason except for the color of their skin or for the family that they had been born into um, and we started seeing so clearly but for the grace of God of the same exact situation and we started the brokenness became real to us and so when we started inviting people of different colors and different ethnicities and different backgrounds into our home sitting at the table uh, Feeding them, caring for their families, their parents. That's when it started really, I think, becoming real for us. Um, and then it was it was like, okay, this is not something that we can just be okay with just not being racist. We, we've got to do something about the problem. There's, there's a problem here, there's an issue here. And we've got to, whether it be opening up our home, whether it be um, lending a listening ear, whether it be crying together, whether it be going and speaking and advocating on their behalf in court or in front of a caseworker. Um, you know, we saw parent, biological parents of kids who, who literally were not able to get their kids back. And, and ultimately it was because of the color of their skin or because of resources they did or didn't have. And so to be able to go and stand in a courtroom or to a case manager and advocate on behalf of those families, I think that's when it becomes real. And when you, you know, when you've got kids in your home, um, that are sitting at the table with you is really when it starts becoming a reality. Um, you know, I think one of the things that, that in this, in this most recent you know, these last few months and um, <clears throat> of the, the most recent issues that have brought this to light, when I watched that video of Ahmaud Arbery being murdered, um, it smote my heart. Um, my parents, my dad for over 20 years pastored in Brunswick, Georgia and lived about 10 or 15 minutes from the neighborhood where that happened. Um, and, and my parents in their neighborhood had a, it's just a flat circle road that, that is their neighborhood. And my teenage son is we would go visit family walks. Um, he would at times just go walking or jogging by himself. And it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This could have so easily been my son in that same very community. This could have been um, and so I, I think I think what what needs to be, what, it needs to become personal. I think that's what's been the thing for each of our kids is is when you have again the same different color feet under your table, that makes all the difference in the world. Hmm. Amelia, you know you've uh, you've grown up in that household uh, with these very same parents, uh, with with your mom and your dad. What are some things that they've instilled in you? that help you process events like we've seen over the last several months? I would say the biggest thing that just really has helped me walk through this um, season that our country is in was just them reinforcing the truth of that we are all created in the image of God. And because of that, our worth is the same, no matter our skin color, no matter our background. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think because growing up in a home where we did have different races and different color skins coming through our house, um, knowing the truth that we are all created in the image of God and we're all equal because of that and we're all worthy um, has really helped to see, you know, with the recent circumstances that uh, we are, we all matter and that black lives do matter and we are worthy. 
Um, and so I'd say that was just the biggest, biggest reinforcement, which is reinforcing that truth that we are creating is, is his image. I'd say that was just the biggest way they have kind of helped me. Dr. Beavers, I know that many of the families that will be watching this CEU or listening to this podcast uh, have children of another race or another ethnicity in their home. Many have uh, black children in their home that they've brought into their home, either through foster care or adoption. Um, when do they need to begin talking about racial injustice with their children? And why do they need to be thinking about it differently with a, a child of a different ethnicity in their home than they would with a, a home where there's an all white home. Why is it different and wh what, what do they need to start saying and when do they need to start saying it? All right, can you hear me now? We got you. The moment your child is old enough to ask about racial injustice and to ask about the unrest in our country, our city, our state, our society, that's when you need to start talking about it. Oftentimes, it's not a matter of when, it's a matter of a moment. One thing that I love about Jesus is that every moment was a teachable moment. And so I don't think we should look at a matter of when as far as age is concerned. I think we need to look at moments. When you see teachable moments in society that you can use, I think we need to talk about those moments with our children if they are old enough to comprehend and understand what's going on. My 10-year-old child asked me two and a half weeks ago, Dad, are we going back to desegregation? Mm. He asked me that because of what he saw uh, with Ahmaud Arbery, with Breonna Taylor, with George Floyd. Uh, it broke my heart that he would ask me that question, but that was my teachable moment. So although my heart was broken, I had to turn into a teacher uh, at that particular moment in time. Now, you know, in a sense, you would be thinking, he's only 10 years old, so how could he know anything about that? But guess what? It was on his mind and he brought it to me. Because he brought it to me, I used that as a teachable moment. And so uh, as far as the win, I wouldn't look at a necessary uh, age. I, I would look at moments. What was the second question that you had? Just how, how would you encourage a white family that is raising African-American boys and girls? How would you encourage them to prepare their children for moments like these? There was somebody uh, on this um, call who said that, you know, it's personal when you have people of a certain skin color inside of your home. Uh, and so they need to look at it from the perspective of, you know, one day it could be your child, although you may be white and your child may be black. Guess what? Your child is going to have to face a reality that you never had to face. Hmm. Um, perhaps uh, most white people I know have not intentionally had to have the conversation with their children, you know, what do you do if you get stopped by the cops? Uh, when your child is of driving age, you may have a general conversation, but that's a conversation I'm having almost every year uh, with my child. I have children who are grown. Uh, and so we have to have those kinds of conversations. When George Floyd got killed, this isn't the first time that we've had to have that conversation. But black people are feeling uh, fearful because every time we tell our children 
what to do when they get stopped by the cops. Something happens to negate it, and we're running after, we're running out of things to tell our children. So at first we would tell them, if you get stopped by the cops, make sure you stay in the car. Well, guess what? Orlando Castillo got shot, and he was in the car. Uh, so then we say, okay, if you're out of the car, make sure you put your hands up. Mike Brown got shot with his hands up. And the list goes on and on and on. And so it's getting to a point like, what do we tell our children? And so if you're white and you have black children, children of color inside of your home, and you are raising them, I think it's very, very important to make sure that you don't raise them in the silo of your previous experience, uh, but get out of your comfort zone so that they can be comfortable and learn about their heritage. And they'll never learn about their heritage if you don't learn about their heritage. So, I mean, you may want to consider going to an African-American church. You may want to consider uh, being around more African-American people. You can't speak up for friends that you don't have. So if you don't have African-American friends, how are you going to speak up for African-American friends? Like mm-hmm. if if you're white and you don't have any African-American friends, and I'm not talking about the token black friend, like I'm not racist, I have a black friend. Like that's not what I'm talking about. But if you're white and you have no African-American friends, and now you're wondering, like, what can I do? Start by building relationships with African-American people. Mm. Herbie, can I add to that? Please, yes. So when I said before that this is the day that my mother and father prepared me for, my husband and I have been talking about this, how we were raised, because we were raised, um, um, the Civil Rights Act was passed in our childhood. Um, and both of our families were from the South. And so they had, even though I grew up in the North, our parents had experienced all this in the South um, and in the North too, it wasn't not there. Um, but they prepared us that as a Negro, as we were called back then, um, you have got to recognize that this world, everybody that grins and skins in your face is not your friend and means mm-hmm. you well. And so you have to carry yourself in a way as so as not to call attention to yourself. Mm. Um, and so it was all about this recognizing that you always are at risk for being judged to be a threat or a problem. Mm. And that don't ever get comfortable with that. Um, and so I think, though, that sometimes families, when, when white families adopt children of color, especially black children, um, you know, that family has been of privilege. They have never, they've been able to be free. They have never had the fear, oh, there's a police officer behind my car. Are they looking for some reason to stop me? Or, you know, I mean, that that hypervigilance that you have to have always. And so sometimes I think that they're not as prepared to know how to talk to their children Mm. about just in the everyday thing about how you carry yourself. You know, I'm saying, when, you know, my, when my grandchildren go into a store, you know, and they're wanting to touch things and look at things, which is nothing wrong. But I'm saying, look with your eyes, not with your hands. Why am I saying that? Because I don't want them to be misunderstood. I don't want somebody to be, oh, they're trying to steal something. You know, I make sure that when my purse is in, when I'm in a store, my purse is zipped. 
you know, that that I am being very, I'm in its second nature to me now, but I'm realized this has just all come back to me this week about how it's, it's become second nature because I was raised to be, you know, to know that at any moment, somebody mm. might be thinking something different about you. Mm. Uh, and just because I'm female doesn't mean I'm a little bit more immune, um, maybe, but not, maybe not necessarily. And just because, you know, I have good manners and know how to carry myself, it does not mean that I've not experienced stuff. Mm. Um, but there was, there was something that broke my heart. And I think that this is where, the despair came in for me. There was a, a story that I, um, a post I read on Facebook of, uh, and it was reposted. I don't even know the gentleman, but it had a picture of him and it was an African-American father. And he said, when I go on walks in my neighborhood, I carry, I always have my dog and my little daughter with me because she's having to protect me because with her and my dog, I'm seen as a loving father out for a walk. But if I was not, I, by myself, I am seen as a threat. And that is a shame when a little child is a protection for her father. Mm. And that is why I've been so full of despair. It's like, Lord, have mercy. Mm. And I think that families have to understand that reality, when, especially if they have black males, that they have got to be ready for that. They've got to prepare them. Don't you doing that child a disservice if you raise them in the same? They may have grow up in a very loving and accepting, but if they don't understand the reality that when they are away from the shelter and the safety of their family, of your family, and how how are they going to maintain? They got it. We don't want them that to be a rude awakening when they're fifteen or twenty one. They need to understand, and that's oh my God that we have to do that, and that's a cry for prayer. I mean, why? But that is our reality, and. The events of this pa- of the past couple of weeks just bring that back home. Mm. We still have that need. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Chris, you you hear that, um, and you've you've had a, a, an awesome opportunity to raise, as we've said before, a slew of children. Uh, would you mind just being honest on what mistakes you've made? and how you've learned from those mistakes and how to, to process and train your children up uh, for being people of color um, in a white privileged world? Yeah, I would say probably the, the biggest part is not fully understanding the issue, not fully grasping how the magnitude of this. Um, I think early on, I thought that, that our kids would be okay because they were in a you know, in a white family, that they would be, that would kind of be their protection. Um, but I think as our kids, especially as they got older, and, and as these things started becoming more obvious and more seen, uh, which, you know, that's that's one of the things, you know, I've heard many people say, these things have been happening, we just haven't seen them. Now we're in the age of cell phones where everybody's got a camera, so these things are being recorded and we're finally seeing what's been taking place. And so I think now that, that I'm seeing these things, um, and, and as I have over the last few years, it's, it's caused us to say, I, gosh, I got to have these conversations. As, as my son started driving and going, I'm like, I got I to gotta talk to him about this. He's not going to be with me and under my protection, and he's going to be in this place. And so I think that's a lot of it. It's just been a matter of not fully grasping the magnitude of it. I, I would have been one of those, and I have said before, when I've heard Black Lives Matter, I, I'd be the one, the ones that come right back, all lives matter. And I believe I, I said that from a place of sincerity. 
And I said that not to minimize the Black Lives Matter, but to try to say, you know, hey, let's let's all let's be for all life, that kind of thing. Um, but I think I think you know now that I'm starting to see more, and I've seen you know my own kids and things that they've experienced, and now that again, once things become personal, it changes your whole perspective. And so, and so I think I think uh, you know I. I where in the past it would have been enough just not to be, for us as a family, not to be racist, for us as a family to welcome kids. I think that's part of it too. We were content with that and not willing to step out and say, these things are wrong, these things need to change, and being a part of that solution. I think that's probably the thing that I regret the most um, as a parent, that I was not more proactive um, with engaging in their culture um, it was kind of the understanding, you know, you're part of our family, and so you kind of come to the family things that we do. And there, there was, there's, there certainly was several, you know, a lot of things that we tried to do that would kind of engage their culture. But I would wish I would have done it to a greater extent. Um, wish I would have been more proactive in that. Um, I think sometimes too, you know, it's been brought up a couple of times on when to talk to your kids and that kind of stuff. You know, I think it's, it's, I've allowed the the desire to keep my kids innocent <laughs> as long as possible. Sometimes I've, that's allowed, that's caused me to stay quiet longer than I should. Um, you know, we were having a conversation with our nine-year-old, 12-year-old just this past Sunday. Um, we, we always, you know, we've been through this COVID time watching church online. And then we have, you know, used that as a time really to just to stop our kids and talk through things. And so we're just kind of talking through what's going on in the world around us. And, and some of it hit me that, that I'm having to introduce things to my kids that they're really Right now, they're oblivious to, and I'm thankful for that. Um, and, and so I've kind of held back in the past because I didn't want to introduce something that was wrong. You know, words that, they'll, that they will hear in society that, you know, they've not heard up to this point, that kind of thing. But they need to know this. And so I think that's probably my biggest thing is being content with being non-racist, but not being as engaged in, in calling it out in others and, and proclaiming the realities and the truth. Amelia, as a daughter who's grown up in a home where you've never known anything but a multicultural home, uh, as you're starting to get out in the world and even working at camp and meeting people who haven't grown up like that, uh, what's been the hardest thing when you see others who haven't experienced a multicultural family? Um, for me, probably it would just be that they're kind of just not aware of the differences in that kind of thing. Um, I'm so thankful that I'm able, I was able to grow up in a home where it was multicultural and all that, because it was very cool to see, you know, where they came from and how they lived their life differently or how they were treated differently, just to be like aware of that. Um, and so I think coming, stepping out of that, it has given me the perspective of, um, of seeing it differently, but it's made me more aware of how people who don't grow up like that, this whole idea of people being treated differently is so new to them. Um, they're just not aware of it. So I'd say that was just the biggest thing. It's just because I've, I've not always been aware of it, but I've had, it's always been in the back of my head that, um, you know, the looks or the idea of, Oh, your family members, they're, you're their family. Really? Um, all that kind of idea. It's always been a part of my life, but people, haven't been able to see that and haven't been able to see that this is, you know, still an issue and that kind of thing. Hmm. Shari, for many years, uh, you have worked in foster care, you've worked in child placing, you've worked in adoption. Um, what do you think are the biggest blind spots 
for white families that are either fostering or adopting uh, children who are black or of another ethnicity than themselves? I think, um, you know, kind of what Chris and Amelia have spoken to is that just their unawareness, if they have not had um, exposure to other um, families of color, especially of the race that they are, you know, stepping into. Uh, I heard one white family say when they adopted, they say, we no longer have the privilege of being a white family. And, you know, praise God, but that we, because we are a multicultural family, we are multicultural. I am no longer just a white woman, um, you know, and so recognizing that you're not a white family with a black child, that, you know, you need to change. It is not your child changing and, you know, and also, and being naive about the reality of our culture and our world. Um I think that those are some of the, the blind spots and thinking that, you know, as Chris said, you know, just because they're part of our family, they're going to be okay. Um, and, uh, and our love is enough um, to overcome that. And um, the fact that we love Jesus and we view people through, you know, as he sees them. And, and you know, we're not raising our children to be racist. Um, I think that those are you know, that's wonderful and those are great things, but it's not enough. I mean, the reality is we live in a sinful and broken world and there's mm. certain things that we have got to be aware of and that, and, and as mom and dad, you're, you're in the driver's seat, you know, but you know, it is an African proverb that it takes a community to raise a child. And I would say another blind spot is thinking that, you know, you don't need to connect with other people. I so love Claire, what you know, you recognize that. You know, that you recognize your need to be plugged in and connected with the community that, you know, that looks like your children. Mm -hmm. And because that's part of your life as well. And it's part of something that they need. Mm -hmm. um, I think other blind spots is, you know, there's been some families that, that they want to just, well, I just love everybody. I don't see color. Well, guess what? You may not, but other people do. Yeah. Um, and to not see color is to deny the image bearer that you have the privilege of raising and loving. Mm -hmm. And God gave us, you know, as, as one of y'all said about God's variety, you mm -hmm. know, I think it was you, Dr. Beavers, you know, that, that God, you know, we are one human race with a great variety. And God did that. And so to deny, you know, or to not celebrate and acknowledge your child's race is to deny a part of who God made them to be mm. and mm. to embrace and uplift that. Mm. So, you know, when we are, I think though, since we're talking with foster care, um, you know, we've got, a, we've got public policy though. We couldn't, we can't do things kind of like we used to do in the old days. When I started out back in the dark ages, back in the late seventies in adoption and was doing transracial adoption, um, we could ask adoptive families that, you know, you know, what connections do you have with the black community? What are you doing and how are you going to have connections? If you're going to adopt transracially, there's some things that you have to do. And, you know, and not uh, being outside the public system, we still can speak into that. But, you know, there's public policy now that makes it very difficult for those adopting and fostering from foster care to address this issue and to talk mm -hmm. with white families 
who are adopt, who are caring for tr children trans, you know, uh, of a different race for them. There's some negotiating you have to do to be able to address it and to help people to try and understand it. And so I would say if people are, you know, are fostering and adopting and through the public system that they not wait for the agency to point things out to them because the agency mm -hmm. may not. Uh, mm -hmm. It's against the law if they do. Um, and so that to be seekers on their own. Claire, for many years, you were helping families adopt transracially. Uh, you were preparing them, you were training them. And then the Lord puts the call on you and Joel to start your family with a transracial adoption. How was it different being the recipients of that education and walking through that process yourself than it was preparing someone for that? Well, of course, with anything, reading it in a textbook and being like a doe-eyed student that thinks she knows what she's talking about, um, everything changes when it's your family and it's in, in your life. And so, but I would say definitely the things that we teach, it, they come to life. Um, you know, you realize the importance of um, of the things that we're teaching our families and hoping that they take to heart. And, um, you know, Dr. hearing Dr. Beavers talk about, um, and Shari too, talking about the importance of, um, of uh, transracial families engaging in a diverse community. Um, well, I feel certain that this was not in Dr. Beaver's, you know, pastoral training, but, you know, he's citing the the stages of a healthy racial development. And so, you know, living that out and engaging in a diverse community sounds all fine and dandy and easy. Um, but really, you know, th those are choices that um, that you have to make differently. And you've lived your life up into this point, um, making choices. And then it's looking back on why did I make this choice? Why is this saying whose who's company I value um, by the choices that I make when it comes to my, my church community and my neighborhood and the friends that I associate with? And just realizing that just like Shari saying that um, I'm a multicultural family member at this point. And so everything's got to look different and I'm out with the old, I'm, you know, throwing that away and, um, you know, moving forward together as a family in a way that is going to help my children develop a healthy racial identity. And that is by, um, through exposure to, to a diverse community and, um, and seeing themselves in other people and feeling accepted and immersed in a part of, um, of, of who they are and who God created them to be and just celebrating that with them. Um, so I, I would say for sure um, that putting that into action is always, there's nothing that is easier to read about than to live out, but um, certainly thankful for the textbook. But I do feel like I have a, a new, um, you know, understanding of, um, of that transracial education that we recommend our families um, after living it out. Dr. Beavers, um, as I think of our discussion, we've, we've talked about preparing our kids and preparing children for racial injustice. But even as we think about white families who've adopted specifically African-American children, why is it also so important that they engage back in that rich heritage? Because there, there, there is a rich, it is awesome. There are awesome things. I mean, it's hard, I know, at times in this country being an African-American man, but there are also some deep, deep, awesome realities. You know, one of the things I love is I just, you know, I, as a white man, uh, going to the barber shop is just something I have to do. You know, as a black man, going to the barber shop, it's community and it's deep and it's rich. And 
And it's something that honestly, I wish I had, but what are some of those things that we need to be teaching our kids to enjoy and to really, to, to, to absolutely love about their heritage and where they came from? Yeah, so I think you just named it. You take the barbershop experience, just any black culture experience that you can give your child, you need to give your child. But here's what I would add to that. A lot of times we think that I'm giving this experience to my child for my child. Mm -hmm. I think parents who adopt transracially need to give that experience to their child, not just for their child, but for themselves. Mm -hmm. Amen. You would never be able to understand the heritage of your child if you don't get it. That's one of the beautiful things about Jesus. The Bible declares in Hebrews chapter number four, verses 15 through 16, that we have not a high priest who could not be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted in all points, yet without sins. And immediately after that, it says, therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The only reason we don't have to tiptoe around what we need from God and we can go boldly is because he understands how we feel. He was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And the only way he did that was through the incarnation of Christ. He wrapped himself in human flesh, came down to 42 generations, and Christ became the visible image of the invisible God. And what he had on human flesh, he cried like we cried. He hungered like we hungered. He thirsted like we thirsted. He bled the same way that we bled. So guess what? There is no human experience that I could ever go through inside of my life that I could say he does not understand. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that I could ever go through in life that I could say that Jesus does not understand. So guess what? If you're going to parent transracially, mm -hmm. you want to be able to understand some of the things that your child is going to have to go through, some of the things that your child is going to have to deal with because they're going to be asking you questions as the parent that you're not going to be able to answer because the whole time you've been trying to give them an experience for the child when really you needed to be giving, it, giving them the experience, not just for the child, but for yourself. It'll help you be a better parent. So from the barbershop to church, um, Adopting transracially, I believe, ought to be more uncomfortable for the parent than the child. <laughs> because if you do everything to make the child comfortable, you're going to be uncomfortable. Amen. Well, Dr. Beavers, I, I'm going to go back to you, and I'm going to ask you a really tough question, and I apologize for it on, on the first part. But unfortunately, so many times politics divide us. And this, this idea of social justice is not about politics. Um, and white people hold on to their love of the Republican Party. Um, and many times that's hurtful and they don't understand why. Uh, why is it so important that we look past politics? And I'll even give you an example. You know, I, I know a lot of folks and in the city you and I live in, in Birmingham, Alabama, I personally believe that we have a mayor in Randall Woodfin who has principally led the city in an awesome way during the last week. And I have yeah. friends that cannot acknowledge the good job he's done because he's a Democrat, which is right. ridiculous. Why yeah. do we have to divorce, especially please be honest to your white brothers and sisters. Why is it so hurtful when they hold on to politics apart from racial, apart from speaking out for racial injustice? Okay. Here's what I would say to that. 
don't look over politics. I think we need to deal with it. And here's why. In this climate, in this culture, in this country, you cannot effectively address the issue of racism if you don't deal with politics. Here's why. When you look at the climate of this country and you see rioting, you see looting, you see racial slurs, and you see a race war at an all-time high, you cannot skip over the fact that the reckless rhetoric of the person in the White House has created a climate for it. Regardless of what you think about his economic policies, regardless of what you think about SBA loans, regardless of what you think about subsidies, oh yeah, that was a genius idea, build everybody out, get an SBA loan at 1% if you gotta pay anything back. Regardless of what you think about that, if you are going to address racism, you cannot properly and adequately address racism and skip over the reckless rhetoric that is literally coming from the from the White House. Like, your child is going to ask you, why is the president saying of people of color, black people, get those SOBs out of the NFL? And it's not just one time. I mean, the list goes on and on. And oh, he's going to ask you, why is he saying that African-American nations are S-hole nations? Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. And so are we having conversations just to feel good? Are we praying just to say we pray together to feel good? Faith without works is dead. So after we pray, if you are not willing to put in the work, and this is where all of us need to arrive on the politic conversation. When we talk about politics and racism, it's not about being Democrat. It's not about being Republican. It's not about being independent. We need to start looking at individual candidates, regardless of their political party. Number one, do you have a conviction that we have a race problem in the United States of America? If you don't have that conviction, you cannot be my candidate. Mm. Number two, once you have that conviction, do you have a plan and an agenda to address it at the core and the systemic policy level? If you don't have a plan and an agenda, you cannot be my candidate. Now, uh, typically I have a lot of white business friends and they say, well, I like Trump because of his economic policies. I'm not necessarily for Trump, but I'm for his economic policies and I'm pro-life. That's what they hang their hat on. Here's what I would say today. Pro-life is not just about the womb. Mm -hmm. Pro-life is from the womb to the tomb. Mm -hmm. So if you think that you're pro-life just because you are against abortion, I think you need to think again. How pro-life are you willing? Uh, really, when you, when you say I'm against abortion, but I cannot speak out. Notice I did not say speak up. Mm. But I cannot speak out because I'm afraid of friends I might lose. I'm afraid of relationships that I might lose if I speak out against the racial injustices of society and the killing of unarmed black men and unarmed black women. 
I mean, this is an atrocity that is going on in our nation right now. And we're so quick to say what well, a problem in the African-American community um, is that they don't have fathers. They're fatherless. Well, guess what? That shows you why racism is a problem. If every other day an unarmed black man is being killed, then guess what? Our children don't have fathers. Mm. Our daughters don't have husbands to marry. Mm. Our communities don't have leaders and role models to look up to and a model after. All of that is connected to racism. Being pro-life is even connected to racism. If you're really pro-life from the womb to the tomb, it's not just about abortion. What do you have to say? How can you be so loud on the issue of abortion and so silent hmm. on the issue of a unarmed black man or woman that is being killed every other day. And for those who don't understand hashtag Black Lives Matter, if we were in the Holocaust, it wouldn't be hashtag Black Lives Matter, it would be hashtag Jewish Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Can you understand that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Shari, um, as, as you have raised adult children, um, and as you've raised children, we know from things we've said here, from things that we're seeing, that uh, many times those in authority have been the oppressors, uh, the, the, the most vile oppressors of the African-American community. Um, you know, I think a lot of folks, white folks, don't think about the history of the police uh, enforcing Jim Crow laws in the city of my town, holding, uh, you know, uh, fire extinguishers and fire hydrants uh, against peaceful protest. There's a distrust there when that happens. How do you raise children to still have a respect for authority while yet also knowing that they have to keep their eyes open for oppression? Um. We look to Jesus. We raise them with a biblical worldview. And, um, you know, we say, you know, I've always said, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm tired of racism. I say racism is sin. And it's going to, you know, while it may get better and it, you know, hopefully we got to work towards it, but it is sin. And until Jesus comes back, we're going to have to deal with it in one way or another. Um, and so we got to be aware of it. But what the Bible says is, so the Bible is the authority of how we are to carry ourselves. Um, you know, in my generation of having Dr. King as a leader um, and parents that very much supported him and his message, um, you know, that was you know, nonviolence and, you know, and trying to be peaceful and trying to be, you know, the Ministry of Reconciliation, you know, trying to be a peacemaker and a peacekeeper, um, you know. Um, so it was a balance, you know, and, and um, some, one of my children today, we can't talk about this because they are just so very angry. Um, even before all this, I haven't talked to them since this, um, but they, even before all this, they were just so very angry about the white man, this and the white man. I mean, they are just disillusioned. Um, in fact, um, 
uh, this particular child is even, you know, he's looking at, uh, you know, talking about, you know, what is the Bible and what is belief in God got? Mm. How is it? You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's their, their struggle, but um, it's, it's, it's a delicate dance. I'm not sure that I've done it right. I, uh, I confess that um, I, you know, there are times in my life that I liked, I wanted to be an ostrich and I played ostrich. Um, but I have to say, Dr. Beavers, you have been very convicting and compelling. Um, mm. It is time for, uh, I've been quiet too much sometimes in the face of, for the, for the sake of peace. Um, but I think these days we have got to, and I just pray that, um, you know, I, yeah, it, it is time to speak out mm. and to uh, risk mm. um, whatever that may bring. Mm. So I thank you for your challenging words, Dr. Beavers, but I'm, I stand convicted on some things, but this is not easy stuff. Mm. Nice, nice. Blessings to you. Dr. Beavers, we're, uh, we're getting ready to close here, but you know, one of the things that I think is so important, um, a movie came out several years ago called Black Panthers. And I think it, I'm not, you know, I, I think it's part of the Marvel series. If I got that wrong, everybody could get mad at me later. But one of the reasons that that movie was so embraced is because for so long Hollywood has put movies out where the black man is the villain. Mm -hmm. And in that movie, the black man was the hero, right? Why is it so important that we expose our children, even to media like this, that shows the beauty of black culture and movies and entertainment uh, where the, the black man is the hero? And what are some other speakers, some other sources, some other places that you would send people to, to experience this type of media and this type of leadership? Uh, I think it's very important. You can never do what you've been exposed to, uh, what you have not been exposed to. So if I, as a black child, have not been exposed to successful black people, then I think in order to be successful, I have to be white. Or I have to act in what is known as a right way to be successful. So knowing that, yes, there are people who look like me who are successful um, makes me believe that regardless of my skin color, although I'm black, I can be successful. I saw somebody else be successful who was black, then guess what? I'm black and I can be successful too. So I think it's very, very important. Um, some other things that people can look at, uh, there's a movie called Just Mercy. Mm. There's a YouTube video about white privilege. I think mm. everybody needs to look at it. Have you seen that before? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, it's about the $100 race in privilege. If you just mm. Google that on YouTube, mm. uh, and there's a group of people, black and white, and they're lined up. I don't want to spoil it for you. Go look at it. <laughs> but uh, I think everybody needs to go look at that. The $100, uh, $100 race and privilege. If you can go look that movie up or go look that YouTube link up as well, uh, I think all, all things like that will help. 
Chris. Here's the last thing I would say. It's important not just for people of color to see movies with black people as the hero. Mm -hmm. It's important for people of color to see movies and images with black people as the owner. Mm. They need to know that black people can own their own businesses because guess what? They see heroes on the football field. Mm. But the black people running on the football field don't own the team. Mm. (laughs) They see heroes on the basketball court. But the black people on the basketball court don't own the team. They need to know, they need to aspire past Dribble League of Basketball. They need to aspire past running a football. Mm. They need to aspire to own the team and put out the money for other people to do it. Mm. I really think that's very, very important. Mm. Chris, as as we close, and if you and then Amelia and Claire would kind of go through, what's what's something that you would tell other, especially white families that are raising children of color, black children, uh, children that are from another ethnicity. What, what's an advice that you would close with telling them? And, and Amelia, when you go, if you'd say, if I could tell a parent this, what would you, what would you say? So Chris, Amelia, and then Claire, what, what, what's a last tip or piece of advice that you would give the families? I think, and again, we've, we've hit it on multiple times today, but I think, I think engage in the culture. Um, provide opportunities for your children. I think what Dr. Beaver said earlier about you yourself experiencing, that is so true. Um, I never listened to nearly as much gospel music until my son Ethan came into my home because he's a singer and he would crank it up. And then I come downstairs and my wife's listening to Kirk Franklin. I'm like, what? Or listening to Kirk Franklin. And, um, and it's just, it's crazy stuff, you know, but we, we embrace it in, in, um, Get engaged with it. Get involved. Again, if you, you know, I think what Dr. Bruce earlier, if you don't have black friends, you need to find some. Invite them into your home. Do life together. Um, and let your kids of both races, you're, you know, if you're, you're a white family raising black kids, let your, your white kids need to see that. Your black kids need to see that, that you embrace and celebrate our differences. We, we love our differences. We're grateful for them. But we have unity in our diversity, and we've got to come together and do life together. You've got to do life with people of all races and all cultures. I would say uh, for me, probably the biggest thing is just help me be help uh, children and kids my age just to be more aware and more sensitive to this topic. Um, I think for a long time growing up, I never really, it was never really spoke about and never really talked about. So I think just um, opening up more of those conversations about what's going on in um, racism and all that sort of stuff and just helping me and others be more aware would probably be the biggest thing. And I would say um, maybe it's okay to push back even on the small things, um, kind of like Shari it's really easy for me to, to find a way to make peace. And sometimes that ends up 
um, unfortunately, and just being quiet. And uh, so I think that one thing that um, I would encourage is just that, um, you know, we can look for for things and, and talk to our children about things that they might be experiencing. And, um, you know, whether it's at school, in the community, that we can we can talk about it and we can we can push back a little bit. And it sure makes my kids uncomfortable. But I think that I think that they'll be okay with it later. Um, and they 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 see that this was um, there was a point to this, um, maybe this embarrassment or this discomfort, but that um, if something happens that makes them uncomfortable, that um, it's okay to call it out and address it and um, and push back. Well, as we close, Brother Thomas Beavers, would you pray for us, for our families, for our nation, um, and for the gospel of Christ to be made known? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you again for this dialogue. We thank you for opening our ears and allowing us to hear you. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the death. We thank you for the burial. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. God, we thank you for your grace, your unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor. God, we thank you for your goodness that gives to us what we do not deserve. We thank you for your mercy that holds back what we really do deserve. God, we thank you not just for your gospel, God, we thank you, God, for your word. You said the spirit of the Lord was upon you, for he anointed you to preach the gospel to the poor. He anointed you to set the captives free. He anointed you to give sight to the blind. He anointed you to heal the brokenhearted. He anointed you to set at liberty those that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, God, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that as we learn about you, that we will be open to learning about the whole counsel of you and applying it to our life. All of us, regardless of our ethnic background, economical background, race, gender, creed, or color, will experience storms in life. Our country is experiencing a storm right now, but your word declares that whoever hears these words of yours and does them, that we are likened to a wise man that built our home upon a rock. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness when the rains descend, the winds blow, and the floods come and beat upon our house, that our house stands because it's founded upon a rock, and that rock is Jesus the Christ, Son of the living God. God, even in our, regardless of our backgrounds, we experience storms, Father God, but we don't want to be foolish. We don't just want to hear your word. We want to apply it. And all of us, are, regardless of our backgrounds, who name the name of Christ, have heard your word. Uh, yet we see different applications of that word. Uh, we deny certain applications of that word. So God, bring us to a point, not just appearing, but a point of applying your word. Strengthen our foundation as a Christian church. Strengthen the foundation of this nation right now in the name of Jesus. God, I pray right now that you will continue to put boldness in our hearts. Give us thick skin and a soft heart as we not only speak up to you, but speak out to the world and call out the injustices of society. God, give us thick skin to be able to withstand the criticisms of people and a soft heart to be able to love them anyhow. God, I pray right now that we would count the cost, that even if it costs us losing relationships, that even if it costs us losing so-called friends, what good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world and to lose their soul, God? So so right now in the name of Jesus, I'm praying right now that with 
others walk off and leave us, that we would know that you promised that you'd never leave us, you'd never forsake us, you'd be with us always, even into the end of the world. You are our refuge and our fortress. You are a very present help in the time of trouble. And we say thank you right now. In the mighty and matchless name of your darling son, Jesus Christ, who's able to do absolutely anything but fail. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, and amen. 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 Thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit herbienewell.com. Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.